We make it a practice each Palm Sunday to consider not only the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but also his death on the cross. And so our sermon for a number of years now on this Sunday, which is also called Passion Sunday in the tradition of the church, is to focus our sermon on the crucifixion and death of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And my prayer for us each Palm Sunday, each Good Friday, is that the Spirit would be at work among us in such a way that we would hear this story that we know so well and yet experience in a fresh and new way the glory and wonder of the death of our Lord. For the cross and the death of Jesus Christ is truly inexhaustible in its meaning and its significance. To speak of the crucifixion of Jesus is to speak of both the horror of human sin and wickedness, the ugliness of evil, and yet to speak at the same time of the beauty and glory and wonder of God's love and faithfulness. The cross displays both of those things. Our sermon text this morning is the Apostle John's account of the flogging, the trial, the presentation, the condemnation, and finally the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and as Pilate so aptly, aptly names him, the King of the Jews. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to God's word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, that is to the crowds and to the leaders of Israel, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. 
when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. And so we ask now that by your Spirit, you would enable us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your Word, that we might hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In order to understand rightly our sermon text this morning, we have to begin first with an older story, the story we heard already this morning 
in our Old Testament reading, a story that also takes place nearby in the land of Palestine and has to do with this small nation that found themselves living in this place. Now, there was something interesting about this nation, this nation of Israel, about this group of men and women and children, something which set them apart, made them distinct and unique from the nations that were around them, and that was this. They had no king. There was no one man who ruled over them, no one man who led them in battle, no one man who rendered judgments in their disputes, no one man who watched over their needs in wartime and peacetime. All the nations around them, they had their chieftains, their pharaohs, their kings, but this nation had no king. And the reason for this lack of a king was simple. Their God was their king. Their God, Yahweh, ruled over them in a special and particular and intentional ways. Their God fought their enemies on their behalf. He had done so time and time again always with victory. Their God settled their problems. Their God gave them a law to solve their disputes. Their God provided for them. Their God watched over their needs. And he had done it very well, by the way. He had delivered these people not so long ago from slavery in Egypt, He had battled the most powerful kingdom in the world. He had then fed them for 40 years by his own hand as they wandered in the wilderness. He had fought for them as they entered the land of Canaan. He conquered their enemies. He made the walls of their cities fall down. He had given them a rich and fruitful land, a land of milk and honey, of plentiful crops, a land where they might prosper and flourish. And even more, this nation's God, Yahweh, had given his people a story, a history, a story of how he had made the entire world, all of creation, in love. And despite the rebellion of humanity that he still intended because of that love that he had for the whole human race, to use this nation to bless the world. But the men and women and children of these people began to grow restless and impatient under the reign of their God. They looked out at the nations around them and they were envious of their kings. And so one day they went to Samuel and demanded that he give them a king. And not just any king, they said. We want a king like the nations around us. We want a king like that. A king that will go out in battle before us. A king that will protect us. A king that will be strong. Despite the love of their God, despite his 
constant faithfulness, they rejected Yahweh as king over them. And their God gave them what they wanted. He gave them a king, a man named Saul. Now this story in 1 Samuel, it's a small story at first glance. It could be passed over with barely a comment, and yet it represents, I think, one of the great turning points in the scriptures, for it represents the moment when God's people rejected him as their king and took for themselves a king like that of the nations around them. Fast forward 1,000 years, and we find ourselves in our sermon text this morning in the Gospel of John with a story that takes place in a similar place and with a similar theme. Now, by any measure, the last 10 centuries before our sermon text this morning, since the nation of Israel rejected Yahweh as king over them, have been more or less an unmitigated disaster for these people. It has not been pretty. Now, there have been good moments, of course, even good decades at times, but mostly they have suffered for centuries and centuries under the tyranny and violence of wicked men who ruled over them. Men like Saul and Ahab and Manasseh. Men who slaughtered them, literally slaughtered them, and preyed on the innocent. Men who offered children, their children, not the king's children, but the children of the people, in worship to idols. Men who abused the weak and needy. These were their kings. They've suffered as well under the kingly rule of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. They have been exiled from their land. They watched their homes and cities and even their temple burn to the ground. But now in our passage this morning, their God has come to them. Their God, that same one that they rejected 1,000 years before, now he has come in the flesh, in the person of his Son, incarnate, and he has taken up again his role as their faithful king. You see, for three years, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, he has healed their sick. He has raised their dead. He has fed their hungry. He has loved them well. And now Jesus comes to Jerusalem to reign, to be enthroned fully and finally as the king of Israel. He stands before Pilate, the Roman governor, but he talks with Pilate, not as you would expect a man under the threat of execution to talk, but as a man who knows himself to be the true king, the true source of authority. When Pilate questions him, Jesus is silent. He refuses to answer. He is the king. When Pilate threatens him with crucifixion, Jesus, the king, says simply this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And Pilate shudders in fear 
Ironically, Jesus' kingship in this passage is shown not only by his own words, but also the words and actions of those who think they are destroying him. His enemies think they are mocking this would-be king, but actually they are establishing his kingdom. Hail, king of the Jews, the soldiers say as they strike him, as they flog him, as they crown him with the crown of thorns, as they place on his shoulders the purple robe of royal authority. Behold the man, Pilate cries to the crowd as Jesus stands before them as their king in his crown and in his robe. His love and faithfulness and strength proved by the blood that covers his body. His promise proved by the silence with which he endures his suffering on behalf of his people. And then finally, at the end of the passage, Pilate sits on the seat of judgment. He brings Jesus out, and like a prophet, an unwitting prophet, he cries to the people of Israel and says, Behold your king. I mean, think of that moment. Jesus is bloody and beaten and he's lifted up above the crowds and they're told, behold your king. And they behold him. They see him, this man who has healed their sick, this man who has forgiven their sins, who has raised their dead and fed their hungry and made their lame to walk and their blind to see. Jesus is their king. And he stands before them with a bloody crown and a bloody robe and an ironic proclamation meant to mock him, but only serves to confirm in the most dramatic terms possible that this is who he is. He is the king. But he is not, in any sense, a king like those of the nations around them. He is a king utterly different than any other king who has ruled before. He is the son of the living God. But our sermon text this morning is not only the story of how Jesus has revealed as the Son of God, the true King of his people. It is also the story of how he is the King who is utterly rejected by his people and indeed by the entire human race because of their sin. Consider the various ways the sin of humanity is on display in this passage, how the rebellion of man is paraded before us. Consider the almost absurd hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. How even though for years they have secretly fomented rebellion and hatred of Rome, they hate the Romans. But now they pretend to be the most model, loyal Roman sympathizers. They challenge Pilate about his friendship with Rome 
They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. These Jewish leaders, they're not friends of Caesar, of course. In fact, they will lead rebellion against Caesar only a few decades later. But they will say and do literally anything to carry out their conspiracy to put this man to death in cold blood. It is difficult to imagine a more stark picture of the blind pride of the human race, the false religious piety that we as human beings are so often capable of. Or we could consider the cold self-interest of Pilate, his fundamental selfishness, the way that he's at first intrigued and fascinated by Jesus, but then how quickly his interest turns to fear and self-preservation, fear of the Jewish leaders and their troubling questions asked in public about the strength of his loyalty to Caesar, fear of the crowds and what they might do if they don't get what they want, and most of all, fear of Jesus, fear of how Jesus is unwilling to play the game of the sham trial, fear of Jesus' claims of authority that seem to transcend his own. And consider how that fear so quickly drives Pilate to act on his own behalf, to step aside, to refuse to take any responsibility at all, to release the robber instead of the king, to sentence the innocent man to death, because it seemed like at that particular moment the only thing that could be done to save his own skin. Or consider the anger, the violence of the crowds. They had praised his name just days before, but now suddenly they are disenchanted with this ruined, apparently ruined Messiah and his pathetic crown and his ugly robe. And they lust for the spilling of innocent blood. They want to see it with their own eyes. They speak these violent, savage words, crucify him, they say. Crucify him. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. But most of all, consider the end of this passage. Consider the way that Pilate pauses before issuing his final judgment, before raising his hands in an imperial blessing of this sadistic mob. And before he does that, he poses this final questions to the crowd. He says, shall I crucify your king? Is this really what you want? Shall I crucify your king? He says. And the people of God hear that question. And they utter the chilling words of their final apostasy and betrayal. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Verse 
And in this way, the ancient sin that began in 1 Samuel 8 is increased. In this way, the sins of the father are visited on their children. It is no longer enough that they reject God and they have a king like the nations. No, this is the heir, they think. Let us kill him and we will have the inheritance. Their faithful king stands before them in his bloody crown and robe. He has healed their sick. He has raised their dead. And they cry in response and say, We have no king but Caesar. He has washed their feet and taught them to love. And they say, crucify, crucify. For this is the story of how Jesus, the Son of God, reveals himself to be the faithful king and is finally and utterly rejected by the human race. It is not only the story of how these people at that time did this terrible thing. It is the story of how all of us in our sin, if we had been there, would have done the same as well. In fact, one of the primary realities that this passage uncovers is the convenient lie that we like to believe that our problem with sin is primarily due to the unfortunate fact that we like things like sex and drink and money and shiny objects more than is really good for us. But, you know, we'll give it up one of these days. We're getting better. No, this passage shows us that human sin is and has always been about power and control, about authority, about who in the end is in charge of our lives, us or the God who made us. This passage shows us that human sin has always been, since the garden, a direct response to God's claim that he is our Lord. His claim that he is our creator and therefore he has the final authority, the final word, the final say, not us. And it also shows us that human sin has always been about the reality that we will do anything to free ourselves from what we perceive to be God's oppressive reign. That human beings would have killed God long before that dark day in Israel 2,000 years ago. And the only difference about this day that we read about in our sermon text is that this is the day that God finally allowed them to do it. You see, this passage shows us that Human sin is not, in the end, just a failure to keep some list of moral rules. No, human sin is always and has always been an act of personal rebellion against the God who would presume to be our king. That's the horror of human sin in this passage. But that's not all that this passage shows us. It doesn't only tell us the story of our sin, the truth about humanity. 
stripped of all of our illusions of decency, who we actually are. Now, it also tells the story of what it actually means for God and his love and his kindness to be our king. It may be this day that the people thought they were rejecting Jesus as their king. But by sending him to his death, they were only enthroning him and glorifying him. For this is what it means for God to be our king. In our gospel reading this morning, just five days before his death, Jesus describes publicly how he understands what is about to happen to him in his arrest and trial and flogging and humiliation and finally his crucifixion. He says to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I mean, think about that for a moment. He doesn't say, now that hour has come for the Son of Man to be rejected or to suffer. He says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For unless a seed falls into the earth and dies... It dies alone. You see, for Jesus as God's Son, the way of the cross is the way of glory. Beloved, this is the wonder and beauty of our God. His glory, he says, is not most clearly displayed in anything that we would most associate with kingship, with wealth or power or dignity. No, our God's glory is most clearly displayed in this. His royal authority is shown in this way. When his son is rejected by the people whom he has loved, when he gives himself in death for their sins, even the sin they are committing at that moment by putting him to death, for it is when his body is nailed to the cross and lifted up in the air to die. One of the most horrible of human deaths. It is in this moment that Jesus is most glorified as the true king of Israel. And it is for this reason that God willed by his spirit for his son to die with these words fixed on the cross for all to see. I mean, it's painted right there, for goodness sake. The message that this is the king of Israel. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, right under his broken and bleeding body. For it is in his crucifixion, friends, that Jesus embraces the worst of your sin, the worst of my sin, the worst of our rejection, the worst of our hatred, the worst of our pride, the worst of our violence, the worst of our shame. And he stretches out his arm on the cross and takes all of it he takes it into himself, and by doing so, he fulfills his own prophecy 
when he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For this is how Jesus, the Son of God, is made our King. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This is how he did it, how he became king, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, friends, beloved, God has exalted this Jesus and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. To the glory of God the Father. Beloved, this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this text. We thank you for the beauty of your Son. We thank you for his kingship, for his rule, for his reign, and for his death. Where he is glorified. Give us a vision, Father, even today, even this coming week, of the glory of your Son and his death for our sin. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.